You're listening to Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact, baby! Hey everybody, welcome to another very special edition of Impact Theory. I'm going to be answering your questions today. We're going to be talking all about one of my favorite topics in this world, how to overcome any obstacle. No matter what it is you're trying to do in your life, I promise you the ability to stay in a solution-oriented mindset and to go over, under, through, around, whatever the case may be, any obstacle, that is going to be the key to winning. So thank you guys so much for submitting your questions. I love that. I love seeing what you guys are curious about and being able to dive into it. So thank you for joining me. And without further ado, here we go with the first question. Hey, Tom. My name is Victor. I've worked in online advertising my entire career. I'm 36. I've been wanting to learn how to code for the last, I would say, 10 years at least. Now is the perfect time. I have plenty of free time. I'm in quarantine, but I feel like I'm too old. What tips do you have to really embrace a growth mindset at any age? All right, man. <laughs> I'm going to bite this microphone. Uh, lean in on this one, man. You gotta, you, you must say, fuck that noise. You cannot allow yourself to say that I'm too old ever again. I don't care if you're 98 and you know that you have 15 seconds left to live. Don't buy into the myth that you're too old because that is going to slow you down. There is a quote that haunts me to my core, which is genius is a young man's game. Now, why is genius a young man's game? Part of it is definitely energy. Part of it is the naivete of the beginner. But part of it is just that as you get older, you become dogmatic. You start saying shit like, I'm too old. You start buying into the myth that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. The reality is your brain remains plastic until the day you die, meaning you can learn new things. The human animal is designed to learn. That's what we are designed to do. Now, yes, when you're younger, it's easier. You learn at a more accelerated rate. I'm not denying that. But if you lose sight of the fact that you really can learn it at any age, and by the way, as you get older, you have wisdom, you have better tools for learning. So there's an efficiency to learning that is not present when you're young in terms of tools and tactics that you definitely have when you're older. And so you also have more will, more drive, more reason. And so if you can manage your energy on both a psychological level, because your psychology is going to have a huge influence over the neurochemistry that you pump. So if you've ever put on a good song and that energy fills you up, you realize just how much, that's pure psychology, baby. That song got you hyped, you secreted dopamine, and now you felt more alive. The problem is, as you get older, you try things, you find the things that work, and the world of things that the young people are trying, which is why they don't know what the fuck is gonna work, so they're trying everything, begins to narrow, 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 until you're like, ah, here's that narrow bandwidth of shit that actually works. When you get there and you think you're at the pinnacle, you are fucked, my friend. That is how people get trapped by being old. You've got to discard all that shit and say, I'm going to try things. Maybe it didn't work in the past, but maybe it'll work now. Read voraciously, find new ideas, put them to use. If you learn something, use it that fucking day. Push yourself, Push yourself to get better, to get faster, to learn new things. Reading, podcasts, YouTube videos. I am insatiable in my appetite for knowledge because I am always shocked. One, the world is learning new things. And two, I'm discovering new things that interact with my wiring, right? We're all, we all have about 50% hard wiring, so we are not blank slates. So it's interacting with the unique way that I think about things, but it's also interacting with the things that I've learned, the current climate of what's happening and all that. But if you're not taking in new ideas, then you can't get new ideas out. So I used to have this formula that hung over my desk and it said, ideas in equal ideas out. 
You've got to voraciously get those ideas in. So fuck that noise about being too old. That is a self-defeating way to think about it. Never, ever repeat disempowering shit like I'm too old ever again. And then go out there, learn to fucking code, become the greatest coder that ever lived. You're 98, you got a long ass beard and you code better than anybody else. And God only knows what the language will be then, but you're going to beat these young whippersnappers. And if you maintain that idea, my friend, you will stay mentally supple and you will dominate, dominate, I say. So get after it. You can learn. Anybody can. All right, next up. Hey, Tom, I'm Sam Montoya in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I recently started a coaching business. I'm using YouTube as my primary mode of content creation, but struggling with audience retention. How would you structure a video to keep user engagement as high as possible and motivate them to take action? I appreciate your time. All right. So this is wonderfully specific. So we can get into um, the YouTube algorithm. So this is one of the things that you really have to understand. So if you want to build a YouTube channel or be a social influencer or anything like that, a big part of the game is psychology of your audience. And a big part of the game is understanding the algorithm and what the algorithms push and promote. Because the last place you wanna find yourself is having to buy your way to your audience. So you wanna make sure that you're getting a lot of organic reach. And to get a lot of organic reach specifically on YouTube, as of the day this is being recorded, because this is always changing, um, some big things that you want to look at. So first and foremost, you have to get people to click on the video. So click-through rate is going to be huge. And by the way, um, to put this in context of overcoming any obstacle, I will say this, that when you break down an obstacle into its constituent parts and you recognize the truth of the situation, then you're going to be much more effective at being able to scale that obstacle however big it is. So the YouTube algorithm can seem very daunting. Building an account can seem very daunting. The thing that stopped me from being intimidated by it is that I knew that it follows certain rules. So humans have a certain level of predictability and algorithms have a certain level of predictability. And when you learn and understand that, then you can begin to do things. So like I said, the first thing that you have to, the first constituent part you have to break it down into is getting somebody to click on that video. So getting them to click on the video is entirely a function of the thumbnail and the headline. So when you're thinking about your click-through rate, your click-through rate is a function not of the content, at all, has literally nothing to do with the content whatsoever. Your content could be the greatest piece of content ever made, and you could have the world's worst click-through rate because the click-through rate is entirely about the thumbnail and the headline. Now, where the two meet is that if you create a thumbnail and headline that is designed above all else to maximize click-through rate, you can get yourself in trouble because you just end up creating clickbait. So. We're all familiar with when somebody makes the world's most enticing and clickable headline and thumbnail, you click on it and then the video has nothing to do with it. So while the click itself wasn't tied to the content, when they get to the content, they're gonna bounce out if it's not real. And that will actually create more problems for you. So it'd be a win on click-through rate and it'd be a total loss in terms of bounce rate, meaning people leaving immediately um, or worse, they may begin downvoting your video. Um, and also your channel is going to be rewarded or punished somewhat based on, there's many factors, but somewhat based on your, your average retention rate at 60 seconds. So a minute in, how many of the people that click through continue to watch your video? So you want a high click through rate, try to keep it at 5% or higher. You want to keep your retention at one minute to 70, 75%. That would be ideal. As you start slipping below 60, you're really going to see um, that the video starts 
uh, Google lets off the gas or YouTube lets off the gas. So it stops getting pushed and promoted as much as you would want it to be. So making sure that we keep that up high. Another thing to think about is view velocity. The number of your subscribers that watch your video within the first 48 hours, that matters. Now, there's a whole lot more. There's a much bigger universe, but that just gives you an illustration of you take this very big nebulous problem, the black box that is the um, YouTube algorithm, and you go out, you learn, you research, you try, you experiment, you take notes, you look at the data, you see what's working, what's not working. But to create those informed hypotheses about what is and isn't going to work, you need to go out and do a lot of research on the um, algorithm in this case. And then most importantly, to be trying things, right? Action cures all. So you want to make sure whatever you're learning, you're putting to immediate use. That is a big key. So don't be overwhelmed by the terrifying nature of the YouTube algorithm. Instead, break it into those constituent parts. Make sure that you're learning about it and then take action. Test, test, test. It's always the winning strategy, no matter what you're trying to do. All right, next. Hey, Tom. My name is Neri. I'm a 27-year-old music producer from Israel. Uh, I've been in Boston for the past five years for school, and I'm hoping to move to LA in the next few months. Uh, I've been struggling with stress my entire life, and I recently began uh, suspecting that because I'm constantly in a fight-or-flight mode, every setback or even every opportunity that presents itself that's slightly out of my comfort zone uh, creates this sort of CPU overload. Um, basically, I feel it makes me bad at adapting to life circumstances, and I really want to change that. So I've been practicing meditation, and I'm trying to make myself do hard things like the gym and the Wim Hof method. Uh, but I was wondering if you have any other suggestions on becoming more adaptable, especially in these very uncertain times, and as a young professional uh, hoping to get into a very tough industry. Thank you. Yes. So I have two things for you. Uh, one is diet. Almost certainly we have uh, some issues with diet in terms of um, if anxiety is getting provoked if you feel like you're constantly in fight or flight mode and you're already meditating, you're already exercising, which would of course be my first go-tos. Uh, but if you're already doing that and you're still finding that you're having trouble, um, the, there's some biological things to get out of the way. Diet, vitamin D, making sure you're getting sun exposure. I know people think this is stupid, but I'm telling you, this is so overlooked. Um, K2, magnesium, like there are some real things you need to think about there on that channel. Now, I'll set that aside because that's a, a whole health theory episode. Um, on the other side of things, how you frame these opportunities, which you will see I use that word very intentionally, how you frame these opportunities is going to determine how you react to it at a physiological level. Okay, Your thoughts, great um, Shakespeare quote, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So trying these things that are way out of your comfort zone and failing isn't bad. You feeling like failing makes you a loser or that you're never going to get these opportunities again or whatever it is that you think about it, that's the thing that makes it bad. So if you reframe it and say, I move towards what scares me, man, that's part of my identity because I know I'm going to grow. And quite frankly, because I insist that I not be weak. I insist that I not be emotionally weak or that I allow myself to back down from a challenge. Okay. It doesn't mean that I don't feel fear. I do feel fear but it means that I display courage, right? That is how you have to think about it. And as you begin to reframe that, like, yo, I'm the type of person that rises up in the face of fear. I move towards fear. It isn't that I don't feel it. It's that I know I'm going to learn. Even if I fail, I'm going to improve and get better. And I will just find a way to make this a positive experience for myself. 
And when you begin to reframe things like that, when you begin to change your self-narrative, then you begin to have a very different emotional reaction to this thing. But you have to take control of that self-narrative. You have to take control of your framing, how you think about this thing. What does it mean? What does success mean here? What does failure mean here? Everything's like reading a book. I'm gonna learn something from this shit. I'm gonna do something. And if I fail, I'm gonna get a ton of information. I'm gonna get better. Right? And if you know about yourself that you're going to show up and you're going to improve, then there should be no fear of failure. It doesn't mean it's your desired outcome. It just means you're not afraid of it because you're going to get better. So don't view yourself through the lens of a moment. View yourself through the lens of a lifetime. So I always see myself in three, five, or even 10-year chunks because when I look at any one moment and I'm embarrassed, I look stupid, I don't feel like I'm delivering value, whatever the thing is that's making me feel badly about myself in that moment, I think, okay, sure, but I'm learning something from this. Because by the way, it really may be true. I really may have embarrassed myself. I really may be underperforming at that moment. But I know, cool, I'm going to learn from this. And that knowledge stacks. Your beliefs matter. And I have a belief, based on reality, by the way, that knowledge stacks. So as I go out and fail, try things, learn, grow, I'm actually able to stack that knowledge and information because it all has utility. I'm improving my skill set, and now I'm able to do bigger and better things the next time. So none of these are make or break, man. Go try them and see yourself only as the learner. I'm saying yes to this, A, because I have a self-narrative that says that I move towards fear. And then on top of that, I know I'm the learner. I'm going to learn something from this either way. And that's it. Hello, my name is Aya Rech and I'm a violinist and a teacher. My question to Tom is, um, when you have a high level goal, which is also a long term goal that you are working on for several years, and when you reach a state of plateau, how do you deal with this plateau and how do you press on with your goal in current situation in the world when the rest of the world is very uncertain? So how do you press on with your goal during uh, this time and when you have reached your plateau? Thank you. All right. So there is a metric shit ton of uncertainty right now. There's no two ways about that. Um, but you get to control how you spend your time. So when you think about making the most of this time, if you allow yourself to get overwhelmed by the uncertainty, then you're going to be paralyzed and you're not going to make good use of this time. Versus if you know what you want to be accomplishing, you know exactly what your goal is. You know, hey, six months from now, I want to be doing this. A year from now, I want to be doing this, whatever. You can't control what happens to the world. So literally shut that out of your mind. Build the skill set that you want to build that allows you to do the things you want to do at the end of six months, a year, 18 months, two years, whatever that is, however far out that you're looking. Skills have utility. Decide what that skill set is. And now we're gonna spend the time building that because that is something that we can control. We can go in and we can get good at that thing. Now, when you're on in the process of getting good, hitting plateaus is absolutely unavoidable. What you want to do is figure out what is it that's beginning to break down. So if you're a violinist, what is it? Do you have a hard time reading music, um, cold reading? Do you have a hard time with the finger positioning? Do you have a hard time with changing tempos? Like whatever is the weakness that makes you feel like you've plateaued, you have to identify what the difference is between where you are and where you want to be. 
Now, oftentimes that's identifying somebody who's better than you and saying, why are they better than me? And not like in a, a judgment about their worth or anything like that. Just what is it that they do better than me and then begin to dissect it? Look, there is quite literally, much to my dismay, nothing that as of today, I'm the best in the world at. Now, uh, drives me crazy when people do this. Sure, I could sub-segment things fucking far down enough to say that, you know, I'm the best person recording podcast answers from the hours of 4 p.m. to 4.07 p.m. in the zip code, you know, of whatever. Sure, but as of right now, at a macro level, there is nothing that I am trying to be the best at that I'm actually the best at. But I don't let it damage my self-esteem to stare nakedly at my inadequacies because my self-esteem is built around entirely being the learner, acknowledging where I'm lacking, right? Lacking in the sense of there's a gap between where I am and where I want to be. That's the lack, self-defined. And I'm willing to stare nakedly at that and say, cool, this person up here is better than me. I want to beat them. I want to get better than them, but I also need to acknowledge what they're better than me at. Now, can I just get better than them at that thing? Do I need to find a separate thing for me to get good at, right? So if I were trying to play basketball, I'm not going to try to beat LeBron James in a one-on-one. He has physical attributes that I think it would be next to impossible for me to counter directly. But there are other things that I might be able to get good at. I might be able to read the court better. I might be better at passing. Who knows? But you go and identify, given the 50% of me that's hardwired that I can't change and the 50% of me that is malleable, how do I bring the reality of those two things together in a way that allows me to perform at the level that I want? So you've identified what it is you're underperforming at, and now you're going to go into deliberate practice. So there's a book by Anders Ericsson called Peak. In that book, he breaks down the process of deliberate practice, of how you take the things that you're not good at, not the things you already are good at, which is what most people will tell you. Lean into your strengths. That's some bullshit. You, yes, know what your strengths are. Yes, leverage them whenever you're in a performance situation and you have to outperform. But when we're talking about practice, we don't want to lean into the things that we already do well. We want to systematically break out the things that we're not good at and find a way to do a um, a practice cycle, a repetition cycle that allows us to actually get better. This is not blind repetition. This is strategic repetition designed to give a desired outcome, whether it's being able to read sheet music faster, you're gonna have to be able to measure this stuff. So figuring out what it is, finding a way to measure it, finding a way to break down the practice elements into steps so that you get better at one small thing which stacks on another small thing, which stacks on another small thing until you're actually bringing all of these small things that you have practiced religiously, diligently, deliberately to get better. And now when you go back to perform again, you're able to perform at a higher level. So not accepting a plateau is a big part of it. Not thinking, well, when I've hit this plateau, that just is what it is. And I've reached the limits. I can pretty much assure you, nobody is ever going to reach the limits of their capabilities before they die. There just isn't enough time. So breaking it down into those smaller pieces that stack, practicing the things you're bad at, grouping it back together, and then going out to perform and not letting yourself get overwhelmed by the uncertainty. That is the answer. All right, next up. Hi, Tom. My name is Riley Seberg. I'm a combat veteran and I own a digital marketing agency with my business partner, Lewis May. We now have a team of about 10 people. So here's my question. How do you know when to push harder and give your input versus sit back and let somebody else handle it? Whether it's on a project, discussions, leadership decisions, et cetera. Thank you. 
All right, man. So this is going to be on a truly individual level. So looking at and understanding who that person is, what your relationship is with them, how much they can take, what what the nature of your relationship is with them in terms of feedback. So for instance, there's a person on our team, his name is Will Vu. Now, Will came to me one day and said, he'd been working with me for a couple of years. And he said, Tom, I want to be honest with what my goal is here at Impact Theory. And I said, amazing. Tell me all about it. And he said, I want to be co-CEO. And I said, all right, motherfucker. But if you're really gunning for that, like we can play a game and all just sort of giggle and laugh and say um, how cute that Will at the time, he was probably 19 or 20 that he said that, you know, how cute that Will is calling his shot like Babe Ruth and saying that he wants the, the top job. Or I can take that really seriously. And now we can talk about what would it really take to get to that point. And if you're giving me permission, which is something that I'll do a lot with people, is you tell me, you know, how hard basically you want to be pushed. Because I'm happy to, like, if you want to know what it takes to to get to your goal, right? Everything is an echo of your goal. He gave me his goal. And I said, cool, if that's really how you want me to treat you, like I'm grooming you to be the co-CEO, it's going to be fucking hard. And we just had a call like yesterday or the day before where um, he brought something up. He said something that I would have let slide in virtually anybody else. And I stopped him in the middle of that. I told him why it didn't make sense. He pushed back. I started escalating. It got to the point where I was like, look, if you really want to be the CEO, you've got to think in a way that is always solution-oriented. You cannot be pushing off something, making it somebody else's problem, or saying that that's too big and that you're not going to be able to overcome that. And so you just sort of move on without thinking about it. I'm like, you are literally poisoning the rest of this team because subliminally, you've told them that this can't be done. And so... Going through that, I would not have done that with other people. I wouldn't have gone that hard. I might have suggested, hey, there's a better way to frame this or whatever. But with Will, because he has specifically asked me to actually help him develop the skill set that he will need to be the CEO, that I treat him differently than I might treat somebody else. Now, everybody in the organization, we have a total transparency culture. But you have to earn your way into that. So one, you're only as good as what you write down. So we have published what our culture is. So we have a culture document. It tells you exactly what a principal's culture is. It tells you what we mean by transparency. It tells you that we expect people to own it, meaning your opinion, speak up or get out. And so we hold everybody to that standard. And so there is a lot of open discussion. Now, we can do that because everybody who's here knew that before they came on and they've bought into that culture and they see the benefits of that culture. And so by communicating what that is, laying the ground rules, having you know rules of engagement, which I'm sure as a military person you're intimately familiar with, once you have those rules of engagement, then it's like, hey, this is how we agreed we were going to deal with each other. You agreed you wanted to be pushed this way. And that to me is very important. Now, one thing that I will throw in there is be careful who you hire. Some people just are not going to have the um, the makeup for that. I won't even say it's good or bad. I'm just saying they're, they approach the world in a very different way. They want their feedback in a very different way. They may not want to be pushed like you want to push them. And so you have to know going in whether somebody is going to be a cultural fit. I think it's as important to judge a cultural fit as it is to judge a skill set fit. So if you get all of those, 
rules of engagement, a good cultural fit. You've written down the culture. You've discussed it. You have buy-in and permission from the person. Now you can be very open and back and forth. And then if you really want to bring it home, you're going to make sure that you're as receptive to that kind of feedback as you would expect them to be. So if you lead by example and you're showing people what it means to take criticism, to be pushed, to want to know where you're weak, and then to work to get better at that. When people see that, man, and then you come to them and say, hey, of course, in a compassionate way, but never sacrificing clarity for kindness. But you tell them, hey, here's you know where I think you are lacking. Here's what I think that you should do to improve that. Um, people know the sincerity of it because they've been on the other side and told you where they think you're weak and how they think you can improve. And if you took that on well and actually did something about it and actually got better and that we're all reaping results because of that improvement, now people are really going to be open to it because you've set the tone. And that is certainly how I do it. All right? That's it. Everybody, thank you again so much for submitting your questions. Any obstacle can be overcome. Breaking things down into their constituent parts, that is the key. Whatever problem it is you're facing, if you stop and really break it down into things that you can execute on day by day and stop thinking about the end goal, which can often be overwhelming and just look at what piece you can deal with right now today. And remember that action cures all. So when you're feeling paralyzed by indecision, when you're, you've got so much anxiety, instead of giving into those feelings, you want to take some immediate action right now today to making progress towards your goal. So make sure you always know, I keep my important things list, make sure you always know what you should be working on the moment that you have free time and just chip, chip, chip away at it. And eventually with enough anger, with enough energy and passion and just indomitable will, you can overcome any obstacle. All right, guys, get after it. Whatever obstacle you're facing, go take care of it. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now, building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys. Thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.